There yes. are tracking numbers. I showed you mine. I don't know why the post I... office would say there aren't. There are. No, no, no. No, I did. I did use the tracking number and I looked it oh. up and it, and it said, yes, it was delivered. And then I was like, can you file a complaint? Can you do any? No, but we can refund your your um, postage. I'm like, okay. What? Yeah. Oh, man. That... So. Yeah. Yeah, that's. Yeah. Oh. Well, I know things will work out. They will. You're going to go on your trip. Your kids will get to go to the motherland. <laughs> we'll see. But if not, I was like, hey, well, John, because John was like, oh, well, I really was looking forward to it. I'm like, well, you and I can still go. But you know what's funny, Tori? Just today, um, my kid texted me and was like, so are we for sure going to Mexico? Because they actually have a project, the Dia de los Muertos project that they're doing in school that he'll be missing because he'll be on the ship and I was like yeah we got the plane tickets we got the hotel we got everything we're good and then I was like oh crap but what you don't have is their passports so anyways that's so strange that it's mail that is uh, addressed to them that seems to mysteriously disappear but the what? Seattle postcards did show up so oh they did okay yeah well that's good yeah I think, yeah actually you know what I think only one of them showed up I don't think the other. So, uh, yeah, I uh, one of my postcards that I sent to someone never made it to them. So, I don't know. Maybe they just thought we had good taste in postcards. I mean, I if I guess. do things well myself, we picked out some good postcards. So, hot tip, everybody. The USPS informed delivery is something you can sign up for for free. And they will send you um, scanned photos are like scans of the mail that's going to be in your mailbox for that day so if something is there and scanned but it doesn't show up in your mailbox you can send them a note and say this never showed up you know um it's that is brilliant tori that is like one of the greatest tips you have ever given i mean you've given me lots of really good tips but that to me yes i signed up for it today um that's brilliant thank you for sharing that People yeah, you're welcome. Do that. It's very, very cool. We'll put it in the show notes because I think that's a, a, a valuable thing to have coming into your inbox. Nice. So, uh, so uh, what is new for me, you ask? Oh, you didn't. <laughs> Tori, what's going on in your world? Sorry. Enough Sorry. about my passport. Enough, no, I make you thinking inter- it all about me. Enough about international travel dilemmas. What's going on in your it's world? To- totally kidding. I think it, I'm, I'm really frustrated for you, Mabel. I'm, oh God. Anyway, I, I hope that they show up or that one of your neighbors, for whatever weird reason, has just held them in with their mail. I know I've gotten people's mail before that didn't look super important, and I keep forgetting to take it to them, but that is from the government. You would think somebody would get that and go oh i maybe i should take this to my neighbor <sighs> um so so for me um i am having my follow-up mammogram tomorrow it was really weird yeah because i yeah no it's a good thing so everyone here's here's my psa about getting your mammograms go get them they are unpleasant. I will say that right now. It's very uncomfortable and unpleasant, but it can save your life. And 
uh, as I talked about on the podcast last year, uh, when I had my mammogram last year, it, they, they did find a lump. I did have a lumpectomy, but everything was fine. It was not cancer. So uh, this is just a, a follow-up, just to make sure that nothing new has surfaced. But I have a unique challenge this year in that my... <laughs> Oh, all the fun medical issues I'm having right now. I have my left shoulder. I have a frozen shoulder, meaning, well, I, you almost have to Google. It is the weirdest thing. And uh, apparently when I was diagnosed with it, the, the ortho surgeon said it is one of the most painful things that you can have. And I concur. It is terrible. It is so painful. Um, and basically I've just since January have lost range of motion. It's hard to put um, my arms around people even for a photo. I remember when we were at the Eng Festival and we were grouping up to take a photo and I didn't want to say to anybody, ow, ow. So I'm just like, you know, taking these pictures ah, and I thought, sorry, I, didn't I know that. I very clearly couldn't like to me, I could not really embrace or put my arm fully around someone. I thought, gosh, they're going to think that this is intentional that I'm were you like with the picture you're tearing up like a tear because uh, it hurts so bad and you're like eh. no but you can look back at those photos and I'm smiling real hard <laughs> <laughs> like ah no there there's just a couple of times where I, I didn't know yet what it was I just thought I had sprained it or done something and it was gonna it was gonna resolve but it didn't that's why I, I, after six months, seven months of suffering, I went to the ortho and he gave me a cortisone shot, which did nothing. It did nothing. <laughs> so I have to have a follow-up with him, but it, it's created some bizarre situations. Like if, if I go through a drive-through or if I have to pull a ticket for parking, <laughs> I, I, have a very hard time doing it i i noticed i saw and actually i felt really bad for you because this past weekend we went to la to go watch a certain play um and then you had to do the the you had to grab the ticket for the parking structure and oh my gosh tori i felt really bad for you yeah it's it's awkward <laughs> <laughs> it's so awkward. It is so awkward. And remember, we there were all those issues with it, too. Like, it wouldn't take the credit card. Oh, then getting out of the parking structure. Yeah, it wouldn't oh, take the yeah. credit card. And then you had you had you you tried yours. It didn't work with yours. You tried mine. Then with mine, it ate the card. That's right. And the guy had to come and open <laughs> up the <laughs> See, everybody, the adventures of Mabel and Tori. <laughs> it's always a party. It was it was fun. It was really fun to go to East West Players to go watch the great Jerry Curl debate by Inda Craig Galvan. And why is that so timely for this episode, Tori? Uh, it is timely because she is our guest. Inda Craig Galvan's plays include Black Superhero Magic Mama, The Geffen Playhouse, A Hit Dog Will Holler, Skylight Theater, Playwrights Arena, The Great Jerry Curl Debate, 
at East West Players, and her work has been developed and presented at Bay Area Playwrights Festival, NNPN Showcase, the O'Neill, Ashland New Play Festival, Ojai Playwrights Conference, Orlando Shakes, and many, many more. We are so excited to welcome Inda to the podcast. Hey, Tori. Hey, Mabel. Hey, Inda. Hey there. <laughs> Today we are talking with Inda Craig Galvan on Hey Playwright. Welcome, Inda. Thank Yay. you so much. Yay. This is cool. We're, we're so excited to, to have you on. You have been on our list of people that we've wanted to talk to for a long time. Oh, my goodness. Um, both of us got an opportunity to watch the Bay Area Playwrights Festival uh, uh, jumping off point and <gasps> oh, and then also uh, we we've both listened to a hit dog will holler on Radiotopia. Wow. Oh. Okay, there's so many things. <laughs> <laughs> but but before but before we start um, t- uh, talking directly about your work and what what we've experienced through your writing, could you tell us? how you came to playwriting. I don't know how far back I should go, but the first play I saw when I was a kid, I, we, we weren't a, a play-going family. It was a school trip, and we saw A Raisin in the Sun. Uh, I, I am a Black woman from the South Side of Chicago. This was a play about Black family in Chicago and South Side, written by, of course, Black women, and I was like, Lorraine Hansberry, oh, this this must be what all playwrights are. And this was must be what all plays are about. <laughs> I did not clearly get out to the theater much. Um, but that really imprinted on me. And How old were you? How old were you when you saw it? Maybe like eight, ten. Wow. Wow. Maybe ten. Uh, and didn't see another play for a very, very long time. Because uh, that just wasn't, that wasn't my life. That wasn't our life when I was growing up. The other thing that really imprinted on me was uh, waking up late at night. Well, late at night for me, I was eight at the time, definitely was eight at the time. And my brother was watching TV downstairs and it woke me up. It's like, you know, 11, 1130 at night. And there was, it sounded scary, whatever was on TV, but people were laughing and he was laughing. And I was like, what is this? And I started creeping down the stairs to take a peek at the TV. And it was this Richard Pryor episode, the exorcist sketch on Saturday Night Live. And I was like, it blew my mind. And like, I remember that moment, like it's happening right now. And I thought, how do you, how do people make things that are live, that are scary, that are funny? What is this world? And I didn't pursue theater acting anything until I was married, had two kids, and I took a class at Second City in Chicago and was like, oh my gosh, sketch comedy is everything, but I don't see any black people here. (laughs) Yeah. How do I get in on this? The type of work that like Steve Carell and, and, and... uh, so many people were making that was sad and funny and doing all of the things that 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 moment I experienced when I was eight was doing. 
I want to do this. So I studied sketch comedy, uh, performance and writing and improv. And that's when I started writing. I started writing sketches three to five minutes. And I remember someone's like, you should try plays. And I'm like, yeah, I, I got five minutes in me tops. Five minutes of material. That's it. I can, I can write a sketch. That's all I got. But in the performance, I started the performance aspect of sketch. I started acting more. I started doing more, doing theater, full length plays. And I would always find myself wanting to, to tweak stuff like, oh, yeah, but do we really need this character? <laughs> so inappropriate. So inappropriate. <laughs> but I think all along, something in me was like, you need to be writing three to five minutes and maybe longer and write what you know, write about being a black woman on the South side of Chicago, write about and use the tropes that from that you've learned from improv and sketch comedy and, and, and bring all of that in. And so finally looking at probably six diaries I started or not diaries, but like journals I started, I mean, it, what is a journal if not a diary? I started every January 1st and pretty much stopped every February because I was bored with the process. <laughs> every single one, like I had them all in a stack and every single one said, maybe I should go to grad school. Maybe I should be a writer. And I was at that crossroads moment in life. My kids were teenagers. I'm like, darn it, I'm going to try. And so I wrote a really crappy play submitted it with an application, got in, and I was starting grad school the same time my daughter was starting undergrad. That's how much life I had lived before finally realizing and accepting I'm a writer and I can do this professionally. And so I went to University of Southern California. We also took a lot of TV and, and, and film and critical studies courses because uh, I also wanted to make money. And, uh, that's, yeah, I started writing plays and then my, the play that was my thesis play, black superhero, magic mama helped me to, uh, get an agent and got it one of a, a bunch of awards and, and had a lot of developmental opportunities. And that was the play where I really found my voice as a, as a playwright, where I was like, I'm going to use some of the stuff I use in, in sketch comedy. And I'm going to use, uh, the sort of nonlinear storytelling and like, cut to the scene when this happened and flashback to this and flash forward to this without calling it out and learning to not compartmentalize my sketch comedy training when it comes to playwriting and to use all of it and, and all of my experiences in childhood and all of my experiences in different industries that I've worked in and my experiences as a mother, just using everything that I knew and putting that into what I was writing that that ended up being sort of my my thing that, that was a long ass story that's what that was no, <laughs> no that is that is so amazing and I'm ah, there's what's the question like I I'm I think your story is very inspiring because I think that people have this idea 
of of the trajectory of a playwright. Even though we have interviewed several people on this show where that wasn't the case, where I, I, I knew by the time I graduated from high school, I knew that I was going to be a playwright, and I went from undergrad, got straight into an MFA program, and your story. But I love that you honor all of the different experiences that you had before you got to your MFA experience, and you were able to bring all of that to the table. And I just think that's that's amazing, and I hope people receive that. I and... do too, because you um, there have been several uh, people that we've spoken with as well who've said, I, I was told I'm not going to get accepted into an MFA program because I am a woman of a certain age, and you know, and I thought, oh my gosh, that is just you are completely dismissing. Um, a person's value based on age like it, it was really that that was so disheartening to me so mm-hmm. I think there's something to be said about having lived a life and having yes! experiences, experiences and having something have. to write about yes! right right <sighs> otherwise all of your plays are going to be about when I was an undergrad right and this guy I dated or this woman yeah. I dated <laughs> This person I dated. Yeah. Uh, yes. Yeah. I also loved hearing that you started in sketch comedy. Yes. Let's talk about that. Yeah. Let's yeah. talk about yeah. that. I had been doing, I really loved training there. I felt like I was really understanding the form and loved m- almost all of the teachers there. Um, in particular, I always give a shout out to Ann Libera, who was uh, one of my instructors at the time, who is a mother and who was probably around the same age as me. And all of this, all of the people there, the majority of the guys, the more majority of the people there were white guys, uh, a lot of white women, not a lot of people of color, not a lot of parents, not a lot of older people. And so I went to Anne and was like, I, I don't know how to do this because everyone's also taking classes at I.O. and everybody's also taking classes at Annoyance and they're getting on teams and they're doing these midnight shows. And I can't do that because I got two little kids at home and I got to take them to I got to make breakfast in the morning and do homework with them. I, I, I don't know how to do this and be successful at it and get better at it. And Anne said, you have to do what works for you and your family. There are no rules to this. No one says you have to also be on teams at this other school and you have to do this and that. Do what works for you. And that was invaluable from then on, something I have looked back on and thought, okay, I can't do this. I can't go stay here. I can't go do this, whatever. How can I do this in a way that works for me and my family? Um, that was great. The other great thing was in not seeing a lot of representation on stage, on the stages there of people who looked like me, uh, of any ethnic minorities, I formed a duo with a who, person who's now like a brother to me, Kevin Douglas, who is also an actor and a brilliant writer. And we called ourselves Kev Inda. Uh, <laughs> and we started started writing smart, funny, black sketch comedy that was just the two of us. We 
did it all ourselves, produced everything, for the most part, directed ourselves and started entering into different uh, sketch festivals. There were sketch festivals all over the country and we were getting in and killing and people hadn't seen or weren't seeing at the time what we were doing and hadn't seen people who look like us doing it uh, or weren't seeing that at the time. And it, it was great. Uh, and opportunities started coming from that, but we lived in Chicago and we had no no means or or, or opportunity to really move to LA to be writers or anything like that. Um, and that was disappointing because we were like, we're on a road to stardom. Oh, no, we're not. We're just going to stay here and keep doing this. <laughs> but it was great experience. I learned how to be self-disciplined, writing ourselves, creating our own rehearsal schedule, being incredibly professional, working through uh, challenges writing wise and venue wise and, and all of the things and making a lot of, of good connections along the way. And f just being unafraid to tell stories from our voice. What was the, what was the, cause that's a lot of work, right? To be, yeah. to, you, you, you built your table essentially, yeah. right? You built your table. And so what, what was the point in your, in your journey that you're like, this is not like, what did it take to get you to that? to that point where you're like, okay, well, the opportunities are not coming to us, so we need to create our own machine. We we were in, we had been given a, this great opportunity, several people of color who had been working in and around that institution. We had been given an opportunity to be in a group. Um, and there were, I think, six of us, maybe six or seven. And we thought we were going to be touring. We thought we were part of the institution. And we were working towards this and we were like, this is great. They recognize our talents. They see us. This is great. And the person who was, who had brought us all together, a black woman who had been doing it forever and was working there said to us when no one else was around, they're never going to let you all tour. And that hit every single one of us so hard. And I think from there, we just realized, well, fuck it. We got to do it ourselves. And there were so many offshoots of groups. We were like, <laughs> we said we were going to be like the Wu-Tang Clan. We're like, these three people <laughs> form a, a, a three-person comedy group called Velvet Velvet Jones. And me and Kevin had Kevinda. And then these guys did a something called Pimprov. And then these two had a ventriloquist act. And then these, and we just were like, it, it's all us in different iterations and we're just gonna do it ourselves because we love it screw y'all if you don't want to let us tour screw you if you don't believe in us we're gonna do it ourselves and that we too often have to do that yeah but we made some really good work all of us <sighs> that's amazing does kevinda still exist is that or is it still in, an entity or is it <laughs> <laughs> we're not an entity um technically anymore we're still very good friends uh we now have the same uh tv agent okay. so we're noodling on something we can write together and kevin got married uh which i guess prevented him from coming to move to la when i moved to la whatever um but he and his wife tambler perry douglas now started doing shorts during the pandemic on instagram the tam and kevin show 
And when Second City was having some issues and needed to hire some um, a, a person of color for a uh, position of power within the organization, they reached out to apparently every single black person they had ever had on their mailing list to ask, do you want to be our new man? was a managing producer. Or I forgot what the title was. I got the, all of us got an email and I said, I'm a writer. No, thank you. Kevin said, no, but actually I've been doing these shorts with my wife. Do you want to produce them? How about you put your money where your mouth is? And they said, okay. And I directed one of the uh, episodes <laughs> So we still are working together. We're still doing stuff. We're still making sketch comedy. And uh, yeah. So I have a love-hate relationship with uh, that organization. (laughs) Wow. That's fascinating. But, you know, you were, I guess, I guess there, we have to take our wins where we can get them. I don't know. It's just, ah. Yeah. Uh, and, And just in general, mad props to you for sketch comedy, because I think that is, the hardest to write like that's a, a I mean I'm I'm a bit in awe <laughs> yeah yeah I find improv you know? harder personally but oh yeah but it's it can be so rewarding I did a, a show with Robin Thede and Holly Walker and Amber Ruffin um I'm, I'm leaving somebody out but we did a improvised version of 227 <laughs> the tv show oh my gosh uh live <laughs> And we had rehearsed, Robin Thede is the hardest working woman on the planet. And we rehearsed so long and so specifically in creating these characters and knowing what our format was. And we never announced at, we realized we didn't tell the audience at the top of the show, this is all improvised. And so people would say, oh, that was really good. Like they would applaud and they say, that was really good. Which episode was that that you all were reenacting? And we're like, Oh God, they don't know. We just made all of this up every single word. <laughs> so then we, we started saying at the beginning of the show, this is all everything you're about to hear has never, these words have never been spoken in this particular order. This is all improvised. And once we started making that announcement at the top of the show, the applause, the laughs, it just multiplied because we were so tight. That show was so tight and so amazing every single night that people just thought it was scripted. I mean, it was it was good. It was it was good for scripted too. But <laughs> I think realizing that the amount of talent that was on that stage. Um, wow. Were you, were you doing that in L.A. Then? Yeah. Yeah. Oh wow. Yeah. So you've continued to do sketch. a little bit, a little yeah. bit. <laughs> but lately, I've been a little a little busy with the writing. <laughs> A little busy. So, Inda, did you move to L.A. Um, for your MFA program, or were you like, we're go- I'm going to L.A. to do this thing? We, I, I was, I was doing a lot of in in acting. I was also doing a lot of commercials. Uh, at the time, I was in every every commercial you've ever seen. Um, so, but there weren't many other television acting uh, opportunities at the time. And as soon as I left, of course. They built studios and, and refurbished studios in every Chicago show ever. But we moved out here because I wanted more acting opportunities. Still didn't quite see myself as a writer then. That was like maybe 13 years ago, 12 years ago. And just came out here and then did even more commercials. <laughs> did some TV. And 
I think it was just one of those January 1st, I need to start a start a journal moment where I was like, I can't do it. I know actually, no, I know what it was before I opened the journal to figure out what should I be doing? I was at a callback. And when you go to a callback, you know, they're, they're so specific. Everybody looks like you. So there would be the same five to 10 women, black women, my age, Afro, same look, same everything. We all knew each other at every single callback. But I was waiting in the lobby and I looked over and there was a group of elderly women, elderly black women who are all saying, Hey girl, nice to see you. How you been Dolores? Um, and you just got a sense. I, I got a sense in that moment that I, I can't be them. I can't keep doing this. There has to be something else. And I, I felt like I was no longer cause I wasn't with Kevin anymore doing the, the sketch. I didn't find any other writing outlet I just feel like I'm not contributing to the world. I'm not saying anything about society. And I don't want to just be, God bless, you know, that those women and Dolores and every actor out there. But I didn't want to be constantly waiting to be judged by some random casting director who would decide that I eat a pancake better than these other five incredibly talented women. I, I just couldn't do it anymore. So then that's when I went through the journals and then was like, what can I do? What is it? What is it that I need to be doing? And oh then I gosh. applied to grad school, <laughs> which I know for everybody that is not the route. Everybody doesn't need it. I needed it because I didn't have a theater train, any real theater training coming up. I didn't have a whole, whole, whole lot of theater experience, even viewing a lot of theater. I didn't, I would see stuff my friends were in, but I, I didn't have that and I needed that education and I wanted to feel like I know what everybody's talking about. I want to know, I, I needed that, that toolbox that everybody else had. I didn't want to feel like I was behind the curve. So for me, and I didn't, I was not disciplined in terms of sitting down and making myself right and finding a group of people to, I, I didn't have that. That wasn't in me. I needed the structure. And so for me, that was, that was the best, the best thing. And are you still in contact with some of your grad school cohort? Well, now you saw the play, A Jumping Off Point, ma'am. <laughs> yeah. Yes. That was based on on a, um, a, a real so character. A, I, I was going to ask. I, was, I feel like everybody knows an Andrew. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I had an Andrew. Does, does... Yeah. <laughs> so, yes, I, I am in contact with every, with, there were there were nine of us total. I am in contact with seven of those people. I'm I'm number eight. Number nine was our Andrew, and I don't talk. To, I don't talk to that person. No, no. Oh my gosh, Enda, it did it felt so real? <laughs> it I. <laughs> and you know, okay, you know so, who? Oh, okay, you go. You go first. Say, no, no, no. Just just um, tell everyone what we're talking about. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I just developed this play at the Bay Area Playwrights Festival. Shout out to them because that was the most one of the most amazing experiences. Beautifully run, kind, generous, thoughtful people, organized, amazing experience. Um, the play is called A Jumping Off Point. It is about a very successful black woman writer, was a playwright, became a TV writer on the day that she signs her contract for her own show on premium cable uh 
someone comes into her home. It's a white man named Andrew who claims that she stole a play of his that he wrote in grad school. And that was sort of her play that launched her career. And now years later, he shows up saying, you stole it. And we don't know what he wants or why he's there. Is it vengeance, revenge? Is he blackmailing her? Who knows at that point? But she now has to deal with what she might have done and how does she rectify it and how do they coexist because now he's in her space and how does she make this right for herself? And it's really a play about the ownership of ideas and story and who gets to write what? Who gets to tell what stories? Also, Andrew is a mediocre, at best, writer. So that factors into it. Um, and it's, it's, I think they described it as a biting comedy uh, in the marketing. And it's, it's funny, but there's also very scary moments. And there's challenging moments. And uh, yeah, so that's the play. So it was, it, I wrote it initially the first draft, my last, I think it was my last semester of grad school, because uh, I was, I, I had an experience with a man who would tell stories in, choose stories to tell in his playwriting that were, were done in a very stereo, the characters were very stereotypical. The writing was not thoughtful and it was often offensive. And he would, with every single project, basically pick somebody in our program. We had a really diverse program. So this play is about the, we had a Kurdish man in the program. This play is about the Middle Eastern man with every trope and every offensive thing you could think. This one's about the Jewish woman. This one's about the half white, half Japanese woman who was raised in Hawaii. Like we see you, we get what you're doing. Oh no. And no one, no one said no. No one said, hey, maybe don't do that. And it was hard. It was really, really difficult to be constantly feeling like you're being attacked verbally in writing. You're being disrespected. You're giving more time and in, in the feedback that you're giving, giving than this person is putting into the work. And you're working your butt off to earn this degree that this dude is about to be handed. I was, I started seeing a therapist myself. Um, it was incredibly frustrating for all of us. So I wrote this play because I was like, I'm tired of nobody saying anything. I'm gonna write this play sitting here in this classroom and you're gonna hear a reading of it. And you're gonna recognize, I don't think he realized it was about him. There was such no. an obtuse nature to this person. So I put it away because there was, there was a moment, there, there's sections that take place in a TV writer's room. I didn't know nothing about that. I was winging it. I was making that stuff up. So yeah, that was 2017. So uh, the end of, I think it was the beginning of this year, I rewrote it. I said, I want to take a look at this play again. Now that I have written television, now that I know kind of what I'm doing, <laughs> I want to look at revisit this play. So I rewrote the whole thing created this more believable version of Andrew gave him, gave him more humanity. He, uh, cause I was real angry when I wrote it. Uh, 
and and submitted it to Bay Area and they they accepted it and did a lot of work on it while I was there and I freaking love this play. I love how it turned out. That cast was stellar and yeah, hopefully it will have a life. I got to tell you sitting there watching that I went, "Oh my I said I sent Mabel a text. I said, "You have to watch this." Yes, as Mabel said, I think we probably have all come across an Andrew and mm-hmm. there was a there was a there was a very funny line about him hearing it on NPR. Oh my gosh. Oh I my went, Oh my god. I said, "How many times?" How many times? <laughs> How many times? And but but in the one thing that I felt you just did so beautifully is what you said. You did give him humanity. I felt like there were no supervillains in the play. And I, I really, which is what makes, I think, which, which makes it land. So like really hits it home for me. I I went, Oh yeah, I bet. But again, (laughs) we've all come across Andrew. I've heard that. I've heard that so much because I wrote whenever I write something it's so specific to my experience usually that I'm like nobody's gonna understand this nobody's gonna believe it uh I'll just try it anyway and then so many people because I think when you do tap into the character's humanity so many people have said oh my gosh I had an Andrew so many people which is messed up but so sad isn't it it's so sad I know I know I'm sorry, Tori, what were you going to say about the actors? Can we just praise them? Oh, just that they, that's just the, <laughs> oh my gosh. And especially I was thinking about Andrew and how that is a, that's a challenging role for an actor to come in to, to you know, to find that entry point yeah. um, for, for a character who is doing what that character, what that character has done. Yeah. Um, and so uh, I just, they, they, they really had such just such a great chemistry. All three of those actors, it just they really lifted your story up so beautifully. I was riveted. Like, you know, I sat down and I thought, oh, I I I have this amount of time. Oh, I couldn't I was riveted. Yeah. I, I just, yeah. This course started with your words, but the actors and the way that it was staged too. Um Staged readings that are challenging for me to watch are the ones where it's like direct address to the audience. I really appreciated how Bay Area did this. Um, The Mm -hmm. director, how Mm -hmm. how the actors, there was movement Mm -hmm. in the story, which I think was necessary to tell that story. The moments with the glass and her hand and when they are sitting and he touches her, even I... Oh, I cringed. I went, oh, no, no, he just touched her. No, yeah. no. So I just felt like all of those moments um, just landed so so much more beautifully because I could see it. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Dominique Williams did a great job with the directing. Our, our actors are fantastic. There's, that, that, there's a moment where he's like asked for a glass of water. I think, it, what, oh. what is the line? Can you give me that yeah. glass of water now? Yes. Can you give me that? Oh, it's oh. that was such a a challenge for myself to not have people saying the thing all the time. To it's the constant it, to just build it into the play so that the context is clear. And by the time he says this nothing line, can you give me that glass of water now? The audience gasps. Oh, you could hear. You could, that yes. was the other yeah. cool thing. Yes. You could hear people audibly yes. reacting and, and 
you know, when Zoom was happening and we were all in the thick of it in 2020 and it was like, mm -hmm, it was, mm -hmm. we weren't getting the audience reaction, but watching this video of it again, they did such a beautiful job, but hearing the audience reaction. Mm. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. That was, that was a moment. <laughs> Yes, and the and the subtext. You're right. You you've it's just um, crafted so amazing. Oh Aww, gosh, I just thank you. <sighs> yes, <laughs> there's an there's an ending. There's some direct address moments in the play. There are three. Uh, one with the main character addressing the audience. The two of them addressing the audience together, and then Andrew addressing his audience. And that was always there. But there was something that the actor playing Andrew Jeremy Stern said that there is a way that makes this, there's something about the, this play that feels meta in that the character of Andrew sort of takes this play too. He steals this yep. because he's the person sitting there uh, at the end. And I was mulling that over, like, how can I make it more explicitly meta? Like, how can I really dig into that? And I think I found it. Oh. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. It cuts. Good. It cuts. It definitely It cuts. does, and I wasn't expecting it. So was it, was that, it was that. It was that. Why not? Uh, like, yeah. He's like, <laughs> All right. Yeah. Right. Oh, uh, they win again. They win again. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Let's move on from that. Okay. It's okay. really like, let's not sit with that. Um, <laughs> let's. Can I just oh, say though, God, yeah. God bless that experience. It's I'm I'm learning all the time. I was so frustrated in grad school because of that. But every part of your life informs the next thing. And it's you know when you're in it is rough and you don't want to be in it. But I thank God for the distance from it and the ability to realize there is something in that experience that I can now use that I can I can take and make it into something else and make it into art that is so true so I'm, I think I'm over the bitterness now <laughs> and and do you think that working on this play has has helped make peace with it if you if you've made peace with it I don't know with the experience with I think it was like well this was something I had to go through this was the purpose of it it's mm. made me more resilient and it's, it's created a piece of art at peace with him. No, but, but with the, ex the experience I've, yeah, I think so. And that, you know, that only comes with time and time. What is time? <laughs> <laughs> you, one thing I, I really appreciate too, that I was receiving from you is about rewriting that you started that first draft writing from rage, which is something we interviewed Marsha Norman and you know, talking about writing from rage and it's, it's an important, it's important to honor those feelings and to put that on paper and honor those experiences. But I also appreciate that you went back and went, Oh, now's the time to revisit this and do some revision. I've had, you know, more life experience. How can I, Fully flesh out each character, mm -hmm. right? But um, writing from rage works yeah. every time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Kevin and I, when we were in Kavenda, we when we were Kavenda, we uh, always said like, okay, what are we mad about this week? <laughs> What's pissed us off? Yeah. Back then, there was a lot of stuff about Bush, uh, Bush. W, and 
Condoleezza Rice and, and Powell and, and just what was going on in, in the world. It was always, what are we mad about now? Yeah, absolutely. But then, you know, when you're doing sketch, it's what are we mad about and how can we find that twist? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, playwriting too, for me. Playwriting too. Yeah. Golly, yes, that, that you're able to instill all that humor too. I was just about to say that. That's a gift. Like, I mean, there's, yes, you, but it makes sense with your background in, in, in sketch and writing sketch. That's like, what would you say that you brought that other people who don't have that experience? Like what, I mean, I don't know if you could even, if you could, if you could say like, what are, what are the golden nuggets of wisdom um, <laughs> that you, that you brought from sketch writing and were able to infuse in your playwriting that someone who might not have had that experience might be like, ah, oh. there was, I, it was, it, the, the one sketch that, that I saw at Second City that had like the biggest impact on me was this, this, it was Stephen Colbert, I think Dave Rosowski and, and I think Steve Carell was in the sketch, but it was about this, this white guy who goes home to his hometown and he warns his friend, I'm a different person when I get home. And when he gets home, he's actually an elderly black woman. And everyone treats him with all these memory, in a way they have all these memories of, of being in love with him, her, or, or being raised by her. And, and he has this whole history. The sketch was hilarious and I cried watching it. Not from like, I cried laughing, but it was so poignant and so beautiful. And it's that kind of thing that doesn't, I mean, it, it, it I've seen it happen in, in, in lots of, in, I won't say lots, but quite a few sketches. When you can do that in five minutes, seven minutes, that kind of training, that kind of experience, studying that kind of work, that had a really big influence on my playwriting. Figuring out a way to not just do a funny character or a, a bit, but to make these really human layered, complicated characters and find the joy in it and the sadness and just kind of juxtapose that just smack the comedy right up against the tragedy. And uh. I, I think it's because that's the thing that I soaked up studying there. That's just lives in my brain as being so powerful. And the, like the, the exorcism sketch on SNL, it was hilarious <laughs> and scared the shit out of me. I was eight, but <laughs> um, yeah, that's, that's what, where it comes from for me. Oh, <sighs> So see, yeah, got love-hate relationship. I, yeah, it's that, the, the polar opposites juxtaposed, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I feel like you did that with the hit dog will holler, too. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, because that's a, that's a scary, it, it, scary it, thing. It, uh, oh, my gosh. It was terrifying. And, and it, again, you've got that element of surprise that just... Uh, sneaks up in your stories where I go, wow, I was not expecting that, you know? And, uh, and again, one character, it seems like in the beginning, seems like a villain, seems like, oh, this is going to be the antagonist. But no, then it just flips. And yeah. I, and I loved listening to that story. I would love to see it in person, but I loved actually hearing it 
that 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 really worked for me. Good. I felt like they did a beautiful so job. Inda, what is the history of a hit dog will holler? Was that written to be um an audio experience? It was but a play went... first. Oh, it was a play first. Okay. okay. Yeah, it was a play first. Um, I wrote it. Uh, I was in the Humanitas Play LA Writers Group with Jen Maisel. Uh, I wrote it as a play. It got produ- it was scheduled to be produced, but then COVID. And so it finally got its production. It was a co-production with Playwrights Arena and Skylight Theater Company. So it was a production. Uh, and it, I thought it was beautiful. We did two black audience nights. And I, I cannot stress how amazing it is to be in an audience of people who look like me experience a play that's about black characters it changes the context of of the work it changes the experience of seeing it so it, it was a play first Giselle Regatel who I had worked with on another podcast project while I was in in grad school she's a producer and a, a, a professor in New York she called me up and said, Hey, do you have anything else? I want to produce another podcast this summer. Do you have another play? And she had named a couple of my, my plays that she had read. And I'm like, yeah, those are so visual though. Those, I don't know that that's right. I have this other play that's a two person play. Can I send you that? So she read it and she loved, loved it. It's, it's about these two, one woman who's sort of a social media influencer who is, um, more than that, but, uh, um, journalist and an influencer and all of the things, but she has uh, agoraphobia, so she does not leave her house. So she is always saying that she's at these rallies and she's at these um, events that she's not really at. Into her life comes this boots on the ground activist who is really out there doing the work and is working as a, a food delivery driver because activists don't get paid. Um, and they form this friendship. And eventually the thing that the activists, or sorry, the, the the main character, Gina, the initial character, Gina, the thing that she is dealing with is preventing her from going out. It's not just agoraphobia. She hears a noise that's outside of her door and it sounds like this monster that eventually sort of spreads. So now every, they're both hearing it and how do they save each other and how do they get out of the situation? So Giselle heard that and was like, the roar, that noise, that is another character. That, yeah, this will work. So we pitched it to Radiotopia. They said yes. I rewrote it for the podcast. So now it's four episodes. It's um, th- more characters. We go outside of the house. We see uh, Drew, the other character. We see her in the world. They're people on the phone there, uh, there's, you know, there's things we had to do to adapt it so that you're not just listening to two women in a house talking (laughs) for four episodes and making the roar a real character and making that the scary presence that you are, that's so layered and so built, um, audibly, beautifully and complexly with such complexity, to the, to the sound. Like if you break down all of the sounds that are inside of that roar, it's ridiculous. Um, so yes, the play came first, then, then the podcast dropped. Was the, the, was the piano in the original, in the play? In the play, there was no piano. There was a painting 
Okay. Oh, okay. There's a painting. And, yeah. And it was Drew's painting? Yes. It was, Drew. it was okay. Drew's painting. She had painted for her grandmother. Her grandmother sold it <laughs> oh my in a yard sale. Uh, so Drew steals it back. And then over the course of the play, she's painting a new, a new piece. Uh, and I actually have those from the original production. Oh, and I have uh, one from a production of, that they did at Carnegie Mellon uh, University. Um, and so in the, in the podcast, you can't really explain this painting. So we made it a piano. She rips out the piano chords. And then you hear her trying to put it back together and tune it. Um, so yeah, just a lot of things to think about when you're adapting from one medium to another. Oh, that's fascinating. You really, you're, yes, right? So what, so what are those things that you, that striking was like, obviously the painting thing, right? The visual and turning it into a, the, the, the piano. But yeah. You still incorporated the, the visual. Cause I, I was imagining what this piano might look like. I, I Me just, too. Yeah, yeah. That's, yeah. It's, it's, yeah. Looks, I imagine it would be gorgeous. Yeah. Yeah. It's a painted piano in the uh, podcast. And the other thing was Drew's a food delivery driver in the play. So she's constantly bringing in food and they're sitting there eating all these different dishes throughout the play. And in, in the podcast, she works for a soundproofing company. So yes. her reason for coming there is a little bit different. It's still filling a need that Gina has, but now it's trying to soundproof this audio booth this woman has in her home so that this noise will stop and it doesn't work, but it serves as a place for Gina to hide. And it serves as a, a, the way that they created the difference between inside the booth and outside of the booth. And, oh, so good. So good. I'm so, I mean, no, I'm not praising myself. I'm praising the sound designer. <laughs> I'd be so you. curious. No, we're praising you. We're praising you. Awesome. I'd be so curious to see in person that other version with the, the food delivery person, because to me, it worked so well to have her be there to f be trying to fix this soundproofing mm -hmm, mm -hmm, that is directly affecting Gina. Yeah. That's so, uh, wow. Yeah. I think it worked that, in both. It, 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 yeah. it was a beautiful production. I was, I was happy with it. All right, Miss Tori, time for okay. asking for a friend. Let's go. Okay, here we go. Enda, if you could experience one year from your life again, which year would it be and why? Oh, my. Inspired by playing with time. Uh, probably. Oh, geez. May, I would say maybe the, the year I was pregnant with my daughter and she was born. It's like. The nine months of being pregnant and then her be the three months after she was born. Um, that's a year, right? Nine, 10, 11, 12. The, uh, I'm not a mathematician, y'all. The experience was something I didn't think I w ever wanted. And it changed me so much and made, gave me such clarity about the world. Like, none of that matters. That doesn't matter. You're wrong. I will say what I want. Like I just became this different person and then having this, this beautiful, amazing third person in our lives. I, yeah. But then also the year my son was born. But then also <laughs> this year has been pretty good. <laughs> yeah. None of it has anything to do with writing. Sorry. <laughs> oh no. Oh no. Doesn't have to. Doesn't have to at all. 
That's awesome. Thank you. I appreciate that. I appreciate your your insights on how motherhood has affected. Because I think Tori and I talk about that a lot. And also, like, how challenging it is to be in this work, it, to do theater, or to, just to be in entertainment and to be a parent. And to be a mom. To be a mom, specifically. Mm -hmm. You know, I think, like, there are challenges with that. Especially when you have young kids and you're trying to do a thing at night. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, used, I had to take a... My son was born. I was taking a breast pump to Second City. And having to, like, go in the bathroom. <laughs> Respect. Man. Yeah. We do what we got to do. Yep. <laughs> All right. And and uh, speaking of doing what we got to do, um, we got to write. So, <laughs> Inda, do you have a writing prompt to leave our listeners with? Sure. Um... That I I got so many from from grad school and from post grad school. One of the ones that I do probably the most frequently, and then recommend to people is the Half Life monologue. Luis Alfaro taught me this one. So you're mm -hmm. writing a character. It can be when you first start writing a play, I find it useful for my own practice when I'm in the play and I don't know what comes next. I don't know how this character should react or what they should want next. So you, whatever age your character is at, if they're 30, you'd write a monologue at, for them at 15. So 50, you'd write a monologue at 25. Look at me doing math. Um, because then you find whatever the that different version of that same character, what their hopes were, what their goals were that maybe they didn't fulfill or they got off track from, what their trauma was or what some in, some huge incident in their life, their personal inciting incident was. You find some nugget once you start writing that monologue that will then hopefully inform where they are now in your play that you're crafting. So the half-life monologue, I don't think it works if you're doing like a 12 year old character. Cause what are they going to talk about at six? But even like a 16 year old, like I remember things from when I was eight and what was important to me or what shitty thing happened to me. And, um, you see how much that character has changed. And the older the character is, it's a much, it feels like a bigger, it's still half, but it feels like a bigger jump, like in terms of who they used to be and who they are now, a 50 year old at 25, same person, but not really. And there's that sense of what they wanted then versus where they are now. That has been super helpful to me in whenever I get stuck with what's going to happen next. That's so, that's such a smart exercise. Yeah, really as you were, cool. as you were, as you were explaining it, I was thinking of a play that it would be really useful to do that with. I'm like, oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I gave that exercise to students at uh, this workshop I taught at Carnegie Mellon. And one person was like, well, my character's 45. So I just did it when she was 35. And I'm like, well, no, that's not the point. You know, I couldn't tell her. <laughs> You done already wrote the monologue, but <laughs> you want to do half age because it's, you're going to find that character in such a different place. 
than where they are now. Yeah. Awesome. That's a, that's awesome. That's really that is a very helpful tool. That's a very helpful exercise. I think that's really cool. Yeah. Cool. All right, Inda. What do you got coming up? Where can people find you if you want to be found? Oh, my. Uh, I have a new play opening, uh, preview starts September 15th. At We're going to go see it. Are you? Yes, yeah. yes, 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 yes. Yes, oh, yeah. We're East West trip. Players is producing the Great Jerry Curl Debate. Where I'm headed to rehearsal right now. Um, and that runs through something in October. I don't have my calendar in here. Uh, yes, Preview starts September 15th. Excited about that based on uh, what I witnessed as a child with my mother working in a beauty supply store on the south side of Chicago owned by a Korean immigrant. And it's a comedy, but it's also, it's me, it's a comedy, but it's also social issues and seriousness and sadness and all of those things. I'm excited about that. Um, What else? Working on a couple of uh, commissions that I can't really talk about because I don't know what they are in it yet. Uh, well, no, one of them I do. One of them I do. Uh, but I, I don't know that it's going to get produced. But it is a beautiful thing that I'm writing and I'm excited about it. It's about Mary Ellen Pleasant, who was actually the black first black woman millionaire before Madam C.J. Walker, but nobody talks about her. And uh, that's with... Old Globe in San Diego. I'm writing a new sh- on a new TV show. We're about a month in, and we're breaking my episode right now because I can't just do twelve things at one time. I have to do twenty. So uh, that's fun. I probably have something else. I don't know. I've got a couple of productions of of, of Black Superhero Magic Mama coming up. Uh, Welcome to Matson is getting a production in um, New Jersey Rep. I don't have a date yet. Uh, yeah. I don't know. I'm on Twitter. I'll I'll post about stuff when I remember. What Do you want us to put your website in the show notes, too? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> That'll... Yeah. It'll all I be on your there. Website, right? <laughs> and your plays, on, are, your plays are on MPX, yes. right? People can find you on MPX. Hey, um, thank oh. you for making your plays available. I, I really love being able to read the plays and i think that's just so cool that you that you do that so thank you for making them available for people to read yeah yeah Yeah. i want people to 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 read my stuff and find the stuff i gotta figure out like when is a new play exchanged when is it no longer a new play (laughs) some of those things i think i need to take off (laughs) i i I think no never (laughs) yeah you just you never you never know what someone is looking for yeah production wise i think and also i just think it can be so inspiring to read someone else's work see oh, how yeah. they how they uh unravel and reveal moments and I, it's it's to me reading and seeing plays is the best teaching <laughs> like Absolutely. continuing to just read and see and have conversations like we get to have. We're very lucky. Oh my gosh. This has been such a wonderful conversation. It has been an absolute delight to meet you, Indel. We're so excited. We're doing a a field trip with an, another person that we interviewed on the show. And we're like, oh my gosh, we're going to go to LA yeah. to watch Indus play. It's going to be so much fun. So we're really looking forward to that. And just uh, 
We are so inspired by your success, by your story. Inda, thank you so much for hanging out with us today. We it, we just had such a blast talking to you and are looking forward to coming to see your plays. And everybody, check out Inda's work. All of this information is going to be in the show notes. And uh, she's having productions done across the country. So you'll be able to go somewhere and see it or, you know, turn on your TV. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> she's on TV too. All right. All right. Thank you. Thank you again, Inda. Thank you so much. Wow. It was so cool to learn about Inda's background. Yes. Oh my gosh. So like, you know, creating opportunities for herself led to this whole other journey. That's, that's really impressive. I love hearing that. Speaking of creating opportunities, now that I say it out loud, it kind of reminds me of something else that we watched this week, which was Christina Wong, Sweatshop Overlord at the La Jolla Playhouse. Right? Because that's essentially what she she takes us on this journey of how a performer in the times of COVID um, found purpose. But boy, yeah, hearing her tell all those stories and, and being in a room with uh, everybody in that audience went through something. Yeah. We were all in it together, you know? Yeah. Whew. Yeah. And then... And then... And then what? Well, and then... So so Saturday night, we went to L.A. Sunday night, we went to La Jolla Playhouse. And last night... <gasps> last night, we had the privilege of seeing a reading of Jose Cruz Gonzalez's new play, Under a Baseball Sky, commissioned by the Old Globe, and performed just oh my gosh it was just such an amazing reading that was done at the logan heights public library yeah wow i it was but one of the greatest parts about that little story tori is that we actually got to meet jose in person and so we've been in zeus with him we obviously had him on the show last season but oh to 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 get to meet him and he's so gosh you know what I, you know, I, I don't like to speak in absolutes, but he may very well be the nicest person on the planet. I mean, he is just so, so generous and sweet and yes. Um, yes he's just one of those of people like where, I, I mean, that's the model of, of who I aspire to be, you know? Just that's that's who I want to be. I want to be like Jose. Yes, I, I I love everything that you just said. I I echo that because walking into that room and when he saw us and realized that it was us, the Hey Playwright team, he was just so accommodating and excited and <laughs> not and... like other people who run when they see us. <laughs> No, but I just think for that person to just be so grateful and excited to meet us, it was, yeah, yeah. So audience, I have to say, it it, it was free. 
and at this public library and to sit there, it was every bit as exciting and magical as any play I've seen with full production. Right. And my imagination was able to fill in the sounds and what it might look like. And the, the actors were just lovely. James Vasquez did uh, a wonderful job. Wow. In such a short amount of time, right? Yes. To have this story told. And I think one of my favorite parts though, Mabel was to hear from the people in the community who came to see that play and how they responded to it. That was just so touching to hear the one man say, um, it, was it his mother that worked in the cannery? Or, was, yeah, right? Was, yeah. Uh, so to hear them talk about how the play moved them and what their experiences were and how it echoed their experience it was just that that was incredible and that's really building community i mean that is really walking the walk yes yes absolutely yeah cool well what's um what what's what's next what's next is the opening of the secret garden that's Ah! right that's right so that is that is happening. The Secret Garden is opening again. If you are in the Pacific Northwest and you want to do yourself a favor and support Latinx uh, reimagining of a problematic <laughs> um, <laughs> quote classic tale, uh, then you should come out to Olympia Family Theater and check out this amazing show. It is going to be it is going to be beautiful. Uh, and I'm not just Holy saying that because I wrote it. Um, I think it is, I believe all but one person is uh, in the cast is a person of color. Um, it is a primarily Latinx cast. And the Regrets puppets. It. Yeah. Oh. Shout yeah. out to String and Shadow. They so are cool. rock stars. Emily McHugh, the director. Mm. So I'll let you know how it goes. You got to take pictures and put them up on our Instagram when you're yeah. there. Actually, Olympia Family Theater, if you go on their Instagram, they have um, they have images of of some of the puppets, including the Robin. The Robin, like, they're doing this cool thing on their their Instagram story where, like, the Robin is showing up in different locations around ah! Olympia. Yes, it's <laughs> super it. cute. But that Robin is just gorgeous. My goodness. Uh... So, uh, as, as you may have heard throughout the podcast, I talk about this um, Paletras, which is uh, Tuyo Theater's Emerging Latinx Writers Workshop. That I facilitate, and one of the uh, members, Mariel Vizcarra, is having her play reading there. So Mariel Vizcarra's okay. play, Tamales de Piña, will be at... Scripps Ranch Theater, that is in San Diego. It starts at 7.30. This is a part of Local Flavor Play Reading, which is sponsored by San Diego Playwrights. So that is exciting. Shout out to San Diego Playwrights. Yes, I will be there. I know you will be there. And um, cool. All right, with that, Tori, I'm going to leave you so that you can get to writing. You have some work to do, young lady. 
I know. I know, and I, I know. I just want to wish you a very lovely mammogram. Oh, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And with that, we say... Bye, playwright. Bye, playwright. Bye, playwright.